and faculty treated my kids like they were their own. Shiloh is a, is a place where, you know, your kids can come and be themselves. The staff is very open to things that the parents have to say. To enroll your child in Shiloh's Early Learning Academy, call 225-343-4734. Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's We call your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Last time we were together, we started a new... Bible study series on the life of Samuel. Uh, we looked at uh, the situation surrounding his birth and uh, his mother, Hannah, and the faithfulness that she exhibited. And uh, it was double for some of you because that was recently one of our Sunday school lessons. As we move today, I want us to look at chapter 3 verses 1 through 14. The key to understanding this prelude to Samuel's ministry, because what's contained in 1 Samuel chapter 3 is his call experience. The key to understanding what happens here is understanding the importance of fidelity. The importance of being faithful, the importance of saying something and meaning what you say, and being committed to doing what you have said you would do. Between last week's lesson and uh, today, we see several examples of both fidelity and infidelity that set the stage for what takes place in chapter 3. For a brief second, I want, we're going to focus on chapter 3. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Look at verses 20 through 26. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him Samuel, explaining, I asked God for him. When Elkanah next took his family on their annual trip to Shiloh to worship God, offering sacrifices and keeping his vow, Hannah didn't go. She told her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll bring him myself and present him before God. And that's where he'll stay for good. Elkanah said to his wife, do what you think is best. Stay home until you have weaned him. Yes, let God complete what he has begun. So she did. She stayed home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Then she took him up to Shiloh bringing also the makings of a generous sacrificial meal, a prized bull, flour, and wine. The child was so young to be sent off. Well, yeah, he's two years old. 
He's young. They first butchered the bull, then brought the child to Eli. Hannah said, excuse me, sir, would you believe that I'm the very woman who was standing before you at this very spot praying to God? I prayed for this child, and God gave me what I asked for. And now I have dedicated him to God. He's dedicated to God for life. It is Hannah's fidelity that causes Samuel to be a priest in training under Eli. Turn over to chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 20. In the midst of all this, Samuel, a boy dressed in a priestly linen tunic, served God. Additionally, every year his mother would make him a little robe cut to his size and bring it to him. When she and her husband came for the annual sacrifice, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, God give you children to replace this child you have dedicated to God. Then they would go home. God was most especially kind to Hannah. She had three more sons and two daughters. The boy Samuel stayed at the sanctuary and grew up with God. So he becomes a priest in training because his mother was faithful to her promise. It is Eli's fidelity to properly training Samuel that lays the foundation for his transformative ministry. Stay in chapter 2 and go back up and look at verse 11. Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy stayed and served God in the company of Eli, the priest. So, with Hannah and with Eli, we see examples of fidelity. We also see the examples of the opposite. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Eli's own sons were a bad lot. They didn't know God and could not have cared less about the customs of priests among the people. Ordinarily, when someone offered a sacrifice, the priest servant was supposed to come up and while the meat was boiling, stab a three-pronged fork into the cooking pot. The priest then got whatever came up on the fork. But this is how Eli's sons treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to God. Before they had even burned the fat to God, the priest servant would interrupt whoever was sacrificing and say, hand over some of that meat for the priest to roast. He doesn't like boiled meat. He likes his rare. If the man objected, First, let the fat be burned, God's portion, then take all you want. The servant would demand, no, I want it now. If you won't give it, I'll take it. It was a horrible sin these young servants were committing, and right in the presence of God, desecrating the holy offerings to God. It is the infidelity of these two brothers, these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, that serves as the contrast to what God desires and what Samuel will ultimately deliver. It is the fidelity of the unnamed prophet who confronts Eli and announces God's judgment on Eli's household. Look one more time. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. 
A holy man came to Eli and said, this is God's message. I revealed myself openly to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your family to be my priest, to preside at the altar, to burn incense, to wear the priestly robes in my presence. I put your ancestral family in charge of all the sacrificial offerings of Israel. So why do you now treat as mere loot these very sacrificial offerings that I commanded for my worship. Why do you treat your sons better than me, turning them loose to get fat on these offerings and ignoring me? Therefore, this is God's word, the God of Israel speaking. I once said that you and your ancestral family would be my priests indefinitely, but now God's word, remember, there is no way this can continue. I can keep on reading, but the point is made. What we see here are alternating pictures of fidelity and infidelity. And that's important because understanding Samuel's ministry and what's going to happen with Samuel, Samuel is wrapped all around the whole concept of fidelity. Here's my pitch for Sunday school. We're still in Sunday school recruitment month. The whole theme of, of this month's teachings in Sunday school is about the fidelity of God. But as I have said to the Sunday school teachers, it ain't God's fidelity that's ever in question. When has God ever been unfaithful? When have we ever had to question the fidelity of God? It's not his fidelity that's in question. It's ours. And there are consequences for being unfaithful to God. Faithfulness to God does not happen by default. It happens by choice. We have to choose to be faithful. Do you remember Joshua's words to the children of Israel when he was getting ready to die? He, he goes through this long rehearsal of all the things that God has done for his people and how he has brought them into this land and how he has moved all the enemies out, most, not all, because Joshua didn't finish everything that God told him to do. But he gets down to the end, and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. And that's what it is. It's a choice. God does not force himself on anyone. You have to make a choice. God, by virtue of his character, by virtue of who he is, chooses to be faithful under any and all circumstances. It's not that God can't. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, then God can do anything. God chooses in every situation to be faithful. The question becomes, can we say the same thing? Understanding that where there is a lack of fidelity, there are consequences that we must be held accountable for. That being understood, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through... We're not going to go all the way through 10. The boy Samuel was serving God under Eli's direction. This was at a time when the revelation of God was rarely heard or seen. 
One night, Eli was sound asleep. His eyesight was very bad. He could hardly see. It was well before dawn. The sanctuary lamp was still burning. Samuel was still in bed in the temple of God, where the chest of God rested. Then God called out, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, yes, I'm here. Then he ran to Eli, saying, I heard you call. Here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he did. God called again, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli. I heard you call. Here I am. Again, Eli said, son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This all happened before Samuel knew God for himself. Remember that. That's important. This all happened before God, before Samuel knew God for himself. It was before the revelation of God had been given to him personally. God called again. Samuel, the third time. Yet again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Yes, I heard you call me. Here I am. That's when it dawned on Eli that God was calling the boy. So Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. If the voice calls again, say, speak, God. I'm your servant, ready to listen. Samuel returned to his bed. Then God came and stood before him exactly as before, calling out, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, speak, I'm your servant, ready to listen. There are some significant things. There are four things that I want to lift up out of these verses that are important about this call experience. Number one, Eli was a good mentor to Samuel, even though he was less attentive as a father. He was a good mentor to Samuel, even though he was less attentive as a father. We just read the passage in, in chapter 2 where the prophet comes to him and says, you haven't been paying attention or you haven't done anything about what your sons uh, have been doing serving as my priest, how they have corrupted themselves and corrupted the worship experience. Even before God actually extends his call to Samuel, Samuel benefited from Eli's tutelage in the ways and responsibilities of the priesthood. Now, this is a benefit to us. You might not think of it that way, but I want to put before you that it's a reminder that we are not disqualified from serving God because we are not stellar in other aspects of our lives. And I can't speak for nobody else but I can speak for me, and I can say, thank you, Jesus. I'm grateful that I don't have to be perfect in every other aspect of my life in order for God to use me. There are examples of this in Scripture. One of the worst scoundrels in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is Jacob. I ain't got nothing good to say about Jacob. And yet over and over and over again, God uses Jacob. 
right on the heels of Jacob. I ain't got too much good to say about Samson. And yet over and over again, God continues to bless and use Samson. I got a whole lot good to say about David. But you and I both know that while David was a great warrior and a great king and a great lyricist, he wrote much of our psalms, David was a terrible father. He was an absolute terrible father. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his sister and David's daughter, Tamar. And when David found out about it, he ain't do a blessed thing. Made his other son, Absalom, so mad that Absalom rebelled against his father and for a period of time ran his father off of his throne. And rather than fight his son, David ran into the wood. He ran to the enemy to keep from having to confront his own child. David was a terrible father, and yet God used him in spite of. I know some folk who think that you got to be perfect in every aspect of your life for God to use you. Camera ain't on nobody but me. Let me see the hands of everybody who's perfect in every aspect of their lives. Let the record show, because the camera ain't on nobody but me. Let the record show, ain't nobody raise their hand. I, for one, am grateful that, 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 that I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be stellar for God. to. Now, let's be clear. God desires the best from each of us. He desires us to strive to be the best that we can possibly be. But the good news is he does not eliminate us from service because we're not always at our best. Bible also says that he's slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, that he does not chide, but neither will he keep his anger forever. I'm grateful for the fact that, that, that he looks beyond my fault and meets my need and allows me to serve him in spite of my imperfection. Number two, Samuel knew about God before Samuel knew God. The passage clearly says that this happened before Samuel had an experience with God. Before Samuel knew God personally, Samuel was serving God as best he could by being in the right place and doing the right things. Now, question, how did Samuel get in the right place? His mama brought him there and made sure that he stayed there. How did Samuel do the right things? Because Eli saw to it that he learned how to do the right things. The point I'm making is that there is value in doing right and seeking to be in the right places because it sets the atmosphere 
for God to do wonderful things in and through us. It also highlights the importance of parental discipline in ensuring that we are in a posture and in a place where we can mature. If our children are not in the right place, having the opportunity to do the right thing, then how can we expect them to mature and become all that God would have them to be? Are you suggesting that everyone who's in the right place always turns out right? No, didn't say that at all. What I'm saying is it helps to be in the right place. No one is responsible for somebody else's choices with regard to God. No parent is responsible for his child's choice with regard to God. No spouse is responsible for his spouse's choice with regard to God. What you are responsible for is putting them in the right places where they can make the right choices. I've lived long enough to know that folk can be in the right place and still make poor choices. But how much more helpful it is when you are put in a position, when you are put into a climate, into an environment where it is conducive for you to make the right choice. I see people, parents, I don't want to say people, parents, grandparents, mentors, make sure that their children participate in athletics. Make sure they go to practice. Make sure they lift weights. Make sure they run. Make sure they learn proper technique. Pay money to make sure that they get the proper training. But when it comes to Sunday school, and when it comes to worship, yeah, if you don't want to go, it's all right. You're saying something. You're saying that those things are more important than your spiritual growth and development. Once again, let the record show, I am not saying that everybody who was put into a spiritual place where, they, where it was conducive for them to grow, grew. But I'm saying that it's always helpful because you put them in, 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 in a place to become great athletes, and not all of them are great athletes. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You pay all kinds of money for them to become great athletes. And they don't necessarily possess the skills, the talents, the abilities to do that. But it ain't because you didn't invest in it. Well, if you can invest in that, can't you invest in their spiritual development? Yes, because, because you haven't taught them personal integrity and personal growth. I don't have a problem with parents doing the best that they can for their children. That's your job. Do what the Lord allows you to do. All I'm saying is, while you're doing all that other stuff, don't shirk in your responsibility to help them to develop spiritually. Samuel knew about God, but the text clearly says he did not yet know God. 
And isn't that true of all of us? Did, wasn't there a time when we thought we knew God and we didn't? But somebody put us in a place where we could hear about God. Somebody prayed for me, had me on their mind, took the time to pray for me. I'm so glad they prayed. It's important that we set the atmosphere for their growth. Third thing I want you to see, God's call to Samuel was personal. Four times. God calls Samuel by name, which indicates that while Samuel may not have known God, God certainly knew Samuel. There is a benefit in knowing that God knows who we are. Jesus is passing through Jericho, and there's a huge crowd, and a fellow by the name of Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but, but the folk don't like Zacchaeus, so they block him out. You know how y'all shift your butts so nobody can get by you and all that stuff that y'all do? Y'all leave your purses on your pews, but can't nobody sit next to you? They, 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 they blocked Zacchaeus out. So Zacchaeus runs and climbs a tree to see Jesus. Jesus walks up to the tree, and he doesn't say, old man in the tree. He calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house today. I'm glad that even when there were times when I acted like I didn't know the Lord, the Lord always knew who I was. This call on, on, on Samuel's life is a personal call. It should not be overlooked that when Samuel heard his name called, he ran to Eli. He ran to the most important figure in his life up to that point even more important than his mother because he's living day in and day out with Eli. He was seeing his mother once a year, but he was living with Eli day in and day out. And, and Eli, at this point, is the most important figure in Samuel's life. And Eli is the one who points Samuel to God. After the third time, Eli says, Next time this happens, don't come running in here to me. Speak out to God and say, God, here's your servant. I am listening. Our role as Christian mentors, our role as those responsible for leading others to Christ is not to maintain a place of prominence in the lives of those we touch, but to serve as vessels that lead people to the one who can do them the most good. 
Did you know that as good as you are, because I know everybody in here is just a wonderful person, just oodles of goodness running out of you. Did you know that as good as you are, there's a limit to what you can do for folk? There's only so much you can do. And don't be one of those people who always wants to be the center person in somebody else's life. Our job is to point people to the one who can really help them. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. The, the, the point being, I don't want you to just follow me. I want you to follow me until you get to the place where you stop seeing me and you start seeing Jesus. That's our goal. That's our responsibility. And after the, the, the third time that this happens, Eli says, don't, don't run back in here. You, you, you call out to God. And that's our responsibility as well. Number four, Samuel was instructed to respond to God's call by saying he was ready to listen. Did you see that? Next time this happens, say, speak, Lord. I'm your servant. I am ready to listen. That's important because there is hardly ever a question of whether God is speaking to us. The question is whether or not we're ready to listen. I'm often asked by people, how do you know when God's talking? When is he not talking? When is he not speaking? Why, why, why can't I understand? Maybe because you're not ready to listen. The first three times Samuel was called, he ran to Eli. Question, where do you run when you need an answer? Where do you run when you're looking for a response? A lot of us run other places than to God. And when that happens, it's an indicator that we're not ready. We know we need to listen. We know we need to hear somebody, but we're not ready to hear what God has to say to us. Too often we allow obstacles to obstruct our view of God and to interfere with our hearing his call on our lives. What obstacles? People can be an obstacle. Circumstances can be an obstacle. Preoccupations can be an obstacle. Guess what? Even you can be an obstacle to you. Paul says, when I would do good, evil is present on every hand. There are things that I know I ought to do that I don't do. Things I know I shouldn't do that I do anyway. And so, and so what I find is that the biggest obstacle to my spiritual growth and development is me. When we allow 
obstacles to obstruct our view of God. When we allow these things to interfere with our ability to hear God, it's an indicator that we're not yet ready to listen. And in case you're going to say, well, I, I heard the Lord 40 years ago. I, I ain't worried about that. You do know that there are times, even after you've heard the Lord, that you lose the ability to discern his voice. In one moment, we just mentioned this Sunday, in one moment, Peter was saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet when the Christ starts talking about his suffering, about his death, about the things that are going to happen to him, Peter all of a sudden lost the ability to hear the voice of Jesus. And Peter grabs Jesus, pulls him to the side and says, you need to stop telling folk that because ain't, ain't none of that going to happen to you. And Jesus has to set Peter straight and say, get behind me, Satan. There are times in our lives, even after we've been saved, even after we've been baptized, even after we've been in the church for 30, 40, 50 years, there are times in our lives when we lose the ability to hear God's voice. Tragedy can cause it. Deaths can cause it. Divorces can cause it. Financial strife can cause it. When we allow the situations of our lives to become more important than our relationship with God, sometimes it interferes with our ability to hear God, to see God, to understand and discern what God wants for our lives. In those times, we have to work and struggle and strain to get back to a place where we can say, here I am, Lord. I am your servant. I am ready to listen. So, after he tells God that he's ready to listen, what does God say to him? Verse 11, God said to Samuel, listen carefully. I'm getting ready to do something in Israel that is going to shake everyone up and get their attention. The time has come for me to bring down on Eli's family everything I warned him of, every last word of it. I'm letting him know that the time's up. I'm bringing judgment on his family for good. He knew what was going on, that his sons were desecrating God's name and God's place, and he did nothing to stop them. This is my sentence on the family of Eli. The evil of Eli's family can never be wiped out by sacrifice or offering. In this call experience, God confirms for Samuel that a shift is coming, predicated on God's holiness. It's important that we read this word from God for what it is. And that is God exercising his sovereignty in bringing about justice. We said to the Sunday school teachers last night, we celebrate God because of his mercy, 
because of his compassion, because of his patience. I don't know anybody who's got any sense who loves the fact that God is just. Do you know why? Because justice don't get you where you're trying to go. Justice does not get you into heaven. And I'm very confident in saying that. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. It is the gift of God that is eternal life through Christ Jesus. We celebrate God because of his compassion. We celebrate God because of his patience. We celebrate God because of his mercy and his grace and because of, of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yet none of that negates the fact that within the character of God, he is still just. He is still a God of judgment. And when all mercy has been exhausted. Justice shows up. It's in, it, it's in his character. God couldn't be God if he wasn't just. God couldn't be God if he did not have a standard that he expects us to live up to. Now, you and I, the writer of Hebrews tells us this, you and I are better than the people of old. Y'all ever read Hebrews 11, where he calls all the names of all them folk? He talks about Enoch, and he talks about Adam, and he talks about Abraham, and he talks about David and Samson and Jephthah. But when he gets to the end of that chapter, he says, we have something better than they had. Because throughout their lives, they lived according to a promise. They lived believing in a promise that was never fulfilled in their lifetime. But you and I live on the other side of the promise. The promise has already been fulfilled for us through Jesus Christ. So we have it better than Eli had it. We have it better than Eli's household had it. But it does not change the fact that God does have a standard. Even for us who live on the other side of the resurrection, God has a standard that he expects us to live up to. I need to be clear that this is a theological point. The standard has nothing to do with, your, with whether or not you're saved. Your salvation is not predicated upon what you do. Your salvation is predicated upon your belief in Jesus Christ. But the loss of fellowship with God, the estrangement from God, is the result of your choosing to live by a lower standard, a lesser standard than the standard that Christ has established. And the standard is simply this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When we fall short of that standard, we estrange ourselves from the fellowship of God. And it doesn't happen all at once. God is patient. God gives you time. God sends warnings. He sends signals, just like he sent to Eli. He sends signals. He, he, he lets you know you, you're, getting, you're getting away from the standard. But every now and then, you and I, even though we're saved and heaven-bound, 
experience periods where we are estranged from the fellowship of God. And when that happens, it does not mean that God moved away from us. It means that we moved away from God. Yes, I don't get any comfort from the justice of God, speaking for me personally, because I know what justice means for me. I'm glad that, that, that I never caught every whipping that I was supposed to catch. Can't speak for nobody else. I told y'all a couple weeks ago, my dad only hit me one time in my life, but that wasn't the only time that I deserved to get hit. I know y'all don't believe in spanking, so y'all just looking at me crazy. But, but I did a whole lot of stuff where I deserved to get whipped, and it didn't happen. Every time I drive 110 north, headed towards Southern Heights where I used to live, I have to pass under that cloverleaf at airline. And every time I drive under it, I don't care how many times I drive under it, I'm reminded of the fact that I should have died right there at that cloverleaf. Me and all my friends, me and all my buddies, we were there while they were building the thing. And, 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 and it was open. And we challenged one another. We were going to climb out on that thing at the, at the highest point. Next time you drive on and look at it, there, there, there's this metal undercarriage that holds it up. And the metal undercarriage is hollow. You, could, you can crawl through it. It's like a little tunnel. So we wanted to go through the tunnel. And we climbed all the way out on that thing. But we challenged one of them. You couldn't go back the way you came. The only way to go back, you had to slide out on the edge and then go back down the other side. Now, we made it, nobody fell, nobody died. But don't you know that my mom and my daddy had both told me to stay off of that construction site? They both did, the, the only time they hear about it is now in heaven. <laughs> Cause I sure didn't tell them about it while I was alive. But there were times when I willfully disobeyed my parents and did what I wanted to do. And if I had been caught, it would have been a whooping. Not a whipping. It would have been a whooping that I would have had to endure. Well, just like that's true about my earthly parents, I can't tell you how many times I have done what God told me not to do. I get no comfort from the justice of God. I know that it's there. I respect it. But I don't get comfort from it because I know if, if it was just justice, I'd already be gone. I'd already be in hell. Most of y'all, somebody in here might be perfect. God bless you. But the rest of us, we be in hell already. I praise him for his mercy. But I acknowledge the fact that God is a God 
of justice and, 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 and that it is within his character to exercise justice. He says Eli's house is coming to an end. I told him. I warned him. He knew. And yet he did nothing about it. It reminds us that when God speaks to us and when God warns us of things, it is with the expectation that we will heed his warning. It is with the expectation that we're going to do what he said do. So how does this whole thing end? We, we, we know what happens here. Look at the very tail end of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verses 19 through 21. Samuel grew up. God was with him. And Samuel's prophetic record was flawless. Everyone in Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, recognized that Samuel was the real thing, a true prophet of God. God continued to show up at Shiloh, revealed through his word to Samuel at Shiloh. The outcome of this call experience is that Samuel stepped up and stepped into the place where God could be revealed to his people in a way that was meaningful and relevant and purposeful to their own development. Understand something. Samuel could have declined the opportunity to serve God. I know we like to, to quote this thing that's in Jeremiah where God says to Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I had a purpose for your life. I don't deny or reject any of that, but I do know that because we are creatures of free will, the fact that God has a purpose for us does not mean that we have to fulfill our purpose. This, this whole idea of predestination, that's not a part of our Baptist theology. It is a part of certain Christian denominations theology. This idea, Presbyterians, for example, believe that the saved can't do nothing to lose their salvation. And the lost can't do nothing to gain their salvation. That's a terrible way to live, especially if you're on the wrong side of that thing. It's a terrible way to live. But, but, but. According to how we interpret Scripture, according to how Baptists interpret Scripture, we are all free moral agents, which means we have the right to choose. So Samuel, in spite of the fact that God called him, in spite of the fact that he was set apart by his mother, a Nazarite vow was placed upon his life, in spite of the fact that from the time that he could walk, he was in Eli's presence and he was taught all the things about how to serve God in the sanctuary and, and in the tabernacle, in spite of all of that, Samuel still had a choice. He could have declined. He could have rejected. He could have decided, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do something else. But to his credit, 
Samuel seized the opportunity to be what God called him to be. William Barclay once wrote, three things don't come back. The spoken word, the spent arrow, and the lost opportunity. Think about that. Have you ever, I, I know nobody in here has ever been drunk, so I, I, I'll take that away from you. Have you ever been so mad that you said something and as you were forming the words and you could see them coming out of your mouth, you were trying to pull them back in? Once they're out, they're out. You can't get them back. You can apologize for them. You can say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. If, if, if you may it, I have discovered, this is my own personal belief, I've discovered that the two most honest tongues in the world are a drunk tongue and a mad tongue. Because all of your inhibitions are gone when you're drunk, and when you're mad, all your inhibitions are gone. So when you talk and you drunk, and when you talk and you mad, I tend to believe every word that you said. And you can wake up, oh, you in bad shape then. He said, what if you're drunk and you're mad? Well, you in really bad shape. Once they're out there, you can't pull them back. The same thing is true about wasted opportunities. God gives us wonderful opportunities. Every day, God gives us wonderful opportunities. We started by talking about the power of choice, that, 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 that you either choose to be faithful or you choose to not be faithful. Here's the thing. Once you make that choice, it's hard to get that opportunity back. There might be another opportunity that comes along, but it's not that opportunity. That one is gone, and it is not coming back. Therefore, we must be judicious. We must be wise. We must be thoughtful with the choices that God gives to us so that we don't have to live with the regrets that come with wasted opportunities. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? I got seven minutes. Y'all packing up, but I got seven minutes left. Uh, do, do, do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says about Esau and, and, and Jacob, that, 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 that when Jacob sold his birthright for a plate of food, he says when he realized what he had done, when he realized the opportunity that he had wasted, he wanted it back. He tried to get it back. He cried to get it back. And the writer of Hebrews says, not even shed briny tears would allow him to get that opportunity back. Once an opportunity is gone, it's gone. Now, 
Somebody will say, well, everything turned out all right for Esau. Everything did turn out all right for Esau. But Esau had to go through some stuff because he wasted that opportunity. Now, the fact that everything turned out all right, I can end on this. The, the, the fact that everything turned out all right speaks to the goodness of God, not Esau. It speaks to the fact that God will give you another chance even after you wasted the last one that you had. I'm so glad we've gotten away from calling mercy a second chance. I've had 10,575,966 second chances. At this point, I just thank God for another chance. Wasted that one, regret over that one, grieve over that one, but I thank God that he gives me another chance. Staff and faculty treated my kids like they were their own. Shiloh is a, is a place where, you know, your kids can come and be themselves. The staff is very open to things that the parents have to say. To enroll your child in Shiloh's Early Learning Academy, call 225-343-4734. <laughs> That's cognitively. Practically, what is dismaying to me is that so many people of color will find their way to predominantly white-led churches and not lend their talents, their abilities, their God-given gifts to the black church and the black church experience where the needs are greater and where your effort can be magnified in lifting up brothers and sisters who are in places of despair. What has happened within the African-American church uh, is not that different. What has happened within the church is not that different than what has happened with other entities and other institutions within our communities. Uh, one of the byproducts of desegregation or of integration, whichever way you choose to, to phrase it, uh, is that there has been a fracture within the African-American community. And many of our brothers and sisters have been left behind. Uh, and the needs that they have are not being met because there is not the resources available in order to meet them. And I'm not just talking about financial resources. I'm talking about talents, skills, and abilities. I'm talking about academic resources. I'm talking about political influence. I'm talking about 
the influence that can be made uh, through physical labor and through coming in and just working with one another in order to help lift one another. That's the experience that is unique to the African-American church. And it is an experience uh, that more of us need to enjoy and more, and more of us need to benefit from. And we are deprived of that. We are deprived of, of the ability to make the differences that can be made because of the fracture that exists within our communities. And you can't convince me uh, that you are benefiting so much from being a part of that alternate worship experience when that alternate worship experience doesn't really speak to who you are. The oppressed cannot receive a relevant message from the oppressor. While we both talk about Jesus, we talk about Jesus from two entirely different perspectives. And so it is important that we recognize that even though we may have enjoyed a, a, a larger uh, degree of success on, in other venues of our lives and other aspects of our lives, it does not change the fact that we are still members of the oppressed community. The oppressed community in Baton Rouge, the oppressed community in Louisiana, the oppressed community in the United States of America. And as the oppressed, we need to recognize the importance and the significance of bringing our resources together and utilizing them for the uplifting of us all. And where we fail to do that, we are a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. faculty treated my kids like they were their own. Shiloh is a, is a place where, you know, your kids can come and be themselves. The staff is very open to things that the parents have to say. To enroll your child in Shiloh's Early Learning Academy, call 225-343-4734.